All right, we're doing another of our open studies tonight. And if you're wanting to find this later on Sermon Audio, this should be open study number 82. And remember, um, David and I did some work together and um, put together an index, which we'll periodically update as we add new studies to the series. Uh, It was hard to find specific topics because they were just all... On Sermon Audio, they're still just titled Open Study 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and there's no idea of, there were, previously there was no way of knowing what actual topics were being covered in each study, but there should be a, a document there as part of the series now that you can uh, click on, and it uh, outlines at least what the topics that are covered in each one of the Open Studies are. All right, so for tonight, I've got three questions I'd like to, I'd like to answer. They're, they're not really related to each other, but they're all excellent in their own context. So the first one is this. It's a question that uh, I think many believers have asked before and struggled with, even if they haven't asked the specific question. Uh, this, one, this, this question is, is it possible for a believer to suffer and to be afflicted under the discipline of the Lord and at the same time not understand why or not be able to trace the root of the suffering that they're experiencing to something specific in their lives. So the short answer is yes, it is absolutely possible uh, to suffer and not understand why you're suffering. Um, you know, we live in a, we live in a world that is filled with suffering, and it is the common experience of every human being to suffer. It doesn't mean that everybody is suffering in the same way, to the same extent, uh, at, at the same time, but uh, you cannot live in this world and not experience suffering. And this is absolutely true even in the lives of true believers. The children of God suffer, and at times, The children of God can even suffer more greatly than the children of the world, the people that don't know the Lord. And um, in terms of the, the, the focal point of the question, they weren't just asking about suffering and the experience of suffering, but they were really concerned with, can you suffer in ignorance, in a sense? Can you suffer without really knowing and understanding the why behind your suffering? And again, the answer to that is yes, and I'll give you I'll just give you two Bible examples that drive this point home. They're both in the Old Testament, but as, uh, their experience is not an Old Testament exclusive experience. This can still happen in the New Testament. Um, the first one is the, the case of Job, uh, probably the most famous sufferer in God's word. The entire book really is a, a book of Job's sufferings, which take place just in the first two chapters. And since the book itself is some 40 chapters long, you might, you know, you might ask, well, what are the other 38 chapters about? And the, the story takes place in the first two chapters and all the 38 chapters that follow are Job coming to grips with his suffering experience and the why behind his suffering and his struggle in that process of going from ignorance about his suffering at the beginning of the book. He had no clue and no idea why he was suffering, even to the extent of he didn't 
believe that he deserved to be suffering, though he was suffering, and the Lord was involved in his suffering. And until we get to the end of the book, and then the Lord, in a special, a special appearance for Job's sake, appeared to him in the form of a whirlwind and spoke to him out of that whirlwind. And uh, so at the very end of the book, we have the Lord's own explanation of what was going on and why it was happening. And of course, as readers, we're not so much looking strictly through Job's eyes. Even in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Lord gives us a peek behind the scenes of why it was happening. And so we have more understanding than Job does. But by the end of the book, the point is that Job came to an understanding of why he was suffering. But there is this lag between the, the impact of the circumstance that caused him to suffer. And we're not talking about low-level suffering. His personal health was in an extreme circumstance of discomfort. And then his family's circumstance was an, ex- an even more extreme situation of suffering. And um, so Job has a reaction to that. And the reaction is, for our benefit, not just for Job's, to see through Job's experience how we all would tend to react in a similar situation. So Job uses one key word throughout the course of his experience of coming to grips with why he was suffering. What do you think that key word might be? And he uses it repeatedly throughout the book. I, I, I intentionally counted up the number of times he uses this word in the book of Job. 25 times he uses this one key word as he's reacting to his suffering. Anyone want to take a guess what the key word is? Why? Why? (laughs) With a question mark at the end. Why is this happening to me? Let me just read you a couple of those out of the list of 25. Chapter 3, verse 23 and just to be clear, I'm reading passages where we know for sure Job is speaking. There, there is a group of friends that come and join him in his suffering, and they kind of sit with him through the experience, and then they begin to offer their own perspectives about what's going on with him. And for the most part, his friends are, are off base or off target in terms of coming with a, a helpful explanation until finally one young friend <clears throat> toward the end, just before the Lord shows up, One young friend offers true perspective, and then the Lord, of course, offers the truest perspective. But here Job is speaking, and in chapter 3, verse 23, Job says this, and this is part of a longer statement that Job is making in his situation. He says, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign the sign that he was experiencing in the midst of his suffering. He's suffering, and this is, this is his reaction. <sighs> you know, he's just overwhelmed in his situation. My sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes doesn't sound like a particularly strong declaration of what we 
termed together as a church a couple of years ago. I took us through a study, short study, a short series called, topical study called Situational Faith. I don't know how many of you remember that study. But this is what Joe, he's in a special situation that requires a, a deep and anchored faith in the Lord, but he's struggling in that. And in the depths of his struggle, he's not displaying at this moment, later he does, but at this moment, he's not displaying terribly strong faith in the situation that he finds himself in. He's basically complaining in the circumstance, and his complaint starts with the word why. Now let's, uh, let's jump over to chapter 7. I'll just give you a second example from Job's reaction. And keep in mind that all of these passages, I'm only going to read two from the 25 whys that Job uh, used. But uh, all of these in the book of Job all take place in the course of a single week of time after the, the circumstances of his suffering have overwhelmed him. And he's just sitting there with his friends and they have this time together and, and he's just he's blurting this stuff out in front of them. Uh, chapter 7, I'll read starting in verse 20. And he's talking here not to his friends directly, though they're sitting listening to him. Here he's really addressing the Lord. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Now, that's a, a, just a different cultural way of saying what we would say today is, why am I your target? He understands the Lord is in some way. He's not sure exactly why the Lord is involved in bringing about this set of circumstances in his life, but he knows the Lord is involved. And he's seen that essentially the Lord is like from heaven, the Lord has shot an arrow that has pierced his heart and his life. And it's an arrow of affliction. And he's saying, why did you shoot it at me? The implication of his statement is there are a lot better targets in the world around me that you could have shot that arrow at. I didn't deserve it. Why did it hit me? So he says, uh, why have you made me your mark? Why? And this is an interesting statement. Why have I become a burden to you? Meaning, why am I so much on your heart, Lord? And if I'm, the, the, the sense of it here is, if I'm going to be on your heart, why don't you think pleasant thoughts toward me and about me? That producing, why didn't you just bless me instead of afflict me? Why have I become such a burden to you? And then verse 21, why do you not pardon my transgression? So if, if I've sinned, I, I, you know I want to be forgiven. Why didn't you just pardon me instead of punish me with this circumstance and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. <laughs> this last part of verse 21 is, you're killing me, Lord, with this suffering that you've brought about in my life. And I'm just going it's, 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 it's to kill me. And then I won't even be here to have a relationship with you anymore. So does this sound like a man 
if you've read the whole book of Job so that you now have the benefit of the deeper behind the scenes spiritual and eternal perspective of why this is happening to Job. And it really is, from the ultimate perspective, it really is happening for a very good reason. But does this sound like a man that knows why it's happening? The answer is no. This sounds like a man who knows it is happening. He knows that the Lord is somehow involved in its happening, but he's not at peace with the fact that it's happening and why it's specifically happening to him. And he is convinced that he doesn't deserve it happening. Now, why does he believe it doesn't deserve for it to happen to him? Because Job is a righteous man. He's identified in another prophet's description later in the Old Testament as one of the three most righteous men in redemptive history. That's high praise. I could only dream of aspiring to that kind of designation being, being attached to my name. It wouldn't be true, but I could, I could hope to attain to that. But Job was living that. And so he is struggling because he has strong reason, not in, not in spiritual pride or arrogance, but just an understanding of, I wasn't aware that I was living such a bad life that this kind of thing should have um, overwhelmed my life. Now, Job is the best example. He's the classic example, but he's not the only one. I said I'd give you two examples from Old Testament key individuals. The other one that is often connected with suffering is um, King David. And we um, we have, of course... The book of Psalms, which are the the worship songs, the inspired worship songs that King David wrote. And many of them are high, high note kind of inspired expressions of worship at high points in King David's life experiences. But many of the Psalms are what we would call a minor key life experience and how David is reacting to those experiences, those experiences of trouble, difficulty, challenge, trial, tribulation, affliction. And I'll give you just two examples from Psalms. Uh, Both of them are right next to each other. One is from Psalm 42. And I'll read, I'll read verse 9, but I want you to notice um, just above verse 1, you'll see uh, in the text, you'll see a de- designation that says book 2. The book of Psalms is divided into groupings of songs. And right under book 2, this specific psalm was identified not just by a number 42 it was identified by a theme and the theme of this psalm is why are you cast down O my soul and so David is writing this he's actually in a not a spiritually cast down place in one sense 
because he is writing this under the immediate influence of the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Yet, his actual real world experience as he was writing it was he was cast down. He was cast down because of circumstances that were pounding on him and leaving him kind of battered and bruised and down in the dumps, so to speak, as we would say. So let's read from just, I don't have time for the whole, uh, the whole context, but let's just jump in at verse 9. Psalm 42, 9, David, singing to the Lord, says, I say to God, my rock, and if you only read that far, you'd think, okay, now David is just about to sing a high note of his absolutely, supremely confident faith in God in the midst of his life circumstances. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Which implies what? He's feeling in this moment, even though theologically, David is no, no uninformed theological man. He knows the truth about the Lord and about his relationship with the Lord and who he is in that relationship with the Lord. He knows it's not even possible for the Lord to forget him. And yet he's feeling in the circumstances that he's passing through as though the Lord has forgotten him. Why have you forgotten me? And so he, he prays and he sings, he worships in the honesty of a forgotten heart crying out to the Lord. Why have you forgotten me? When I go, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So we have that key word repeated twice in verse 9, the, the, word, the same word that Job used as the focal point of his reaction in the midst of his suffering circumstances. Why? And then following up that why question, a second why. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? And then verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then again in verse 11, another why. But this one, now directed not to the Lord, but to himself, he's talking himself in a good way, a healthy way, a godly way. He's talking himself out of his depression And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. It's a self-talk, but but God-inspired, God-influenced self-talk. Not just giving himself a pep talk on an emotional level, but really reminding his own soul of where it should be anchored in the midst of his suffering circumstances. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right, so I just wanted to use those two to remind us that yes, in, in terms of the question that was asked, it is possible to, be, to suffer and be afflicted even under the discipline of the Lord and at the same time not understand why or not be able to trace the root of the suffering to something specific. There's nothing specific that Job is able to tie his experience to. And in this specific moment, there are other moments for David where he was suffering and he knew exactly why he was suffering. But this is one of those cases where he knows the the practical circumstances because of his enemies oppressing him and attacking him and hounding him. But he doesn't know why the Lord is allowing it to happen in this moment. All right, so to answer the question, 
that wasn't asked. So, I, so far I've answered the question. Yes, it's possible. But I, I don't want to just leave you with, it's possible for you to suffer in ignorance. I want to help you to not stay there. Just like David didn't want to stay where he was in uh, verses 9 and 10. He wanted to end in a healthier perspective in verse 11. So here's basic suffering principles from a biblical perspective. And this, this part we could spend not just the rest of tonight's study, but we could do a whole a mini series of studies on this. So I'm just going to overview this real briefly. I'm not going to give biblical examples for each one. Just won't have time to do that. But there, I'll say it this way. There are four primary reasons why even true believers suffer in this life after coming to know the Lord. Four primary reasons. I'm going to give you the four reasons, and then I want to give you some advice on how to figure out, by the grace of God, discern, by the grace of God, which one of the four is happening to you when you're suffering. Because knowing theologically, let's say some suffering circumstance starts to happen to me. And I know already, I know, because I'm about to teach it to you, there's only one of four possible reasons why this can be happening. It's not enough for me to know conceptually there are four reasons. It's the most needed and most helpful for me to be able to accurately identify which of the four is connected to my specific situation. So the first is we suffer, even as believers, because we live in a fallen world. And because of the long-term consequences of sin, not your own specifically, but just sin in general, released into the world, going all traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden, there are continuing consequences that the entire human race experiences because of that original sin. These are common to all human beings. For instance, we, we die. And that's a consequence, long-term consequence of sin. Not necessarily just because you committed your own sin, but whether you ever committed your own sin or not, you would die because you are Adam's child and he brought death into the world. You get sick, you get tired, you get cranky, you, you, know, you live in a fallen world and so does everyone else around you. And so even if you were just living in isolation, you would suffer because of the fallenness of the world. But we're not meant to. We're not called to live in isolation. We're called to live in relationship. Now you put a bunch of fallen people together in one relational context. And what's going to happen? They're going to rub up against each other in fallen ways. And the suffering only gets increased and magnified. So there are fallen circumstances that we have to deal with, and then there are fallen or broken relationships because of the effect of the fall. And all of that only creates and increases suffering. Second reason why we suffer. Your personal sin. Every time you sin, you set in motion by God's design and intention because every sin experience is a teaching moment for the Lord's purpose in your life. So every time you sin, you set in motion consequences that are coming your way for the sin that you've committed. 
Now, does that mean that the Lord doesn't forgive us if we repent and ask him to forgive us? No, he does. He's gracious. He's generous. He's kind. He's, he's warm-hearted toward his own children. And when we ask him to forgive us like King David did, sinning with Bathsheba, the Lord fully and, and completely forgave him. But does that mean that he never had to experience any ongoing consequences because the Lord forgave him? The rest of his life, he faced consequences because of what he set in motion with Bathsheba. His life was never the same after that. Fully forgiven, fully restored in terms of relationship with the Lord, but now living in a set of consequences that would not have been his life experience outside of him crossing that line of sin. Um, Third reason why we suffer as believers character development. Uh, We focused on this just recently again as a church. We focused on it many times before. Uh, James 1, 2 through 4. You know, let, well, let me just briefly read it. I don't want to leave out any pertinent information. James 1, 2 through 4. We studied this in home church, just this uh, last home church. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The point of the passage is the Lord will bring trials into our lives even if we don't sin. He will bring trials into our lives in order to stimulate growth in our character. Growth that would not happen without the trial. Think of it in terms of uh, going to the gym. It's a, it's, a, it's a gym for your soul rather than a gym for your body. And, you know, there, there's a saying in gyms. There's a true principle connector to the saying. The saying goes, no pain, no, no pain. gain. What do they mean by that? Do they mean you walk in the front door and people start slapping you in the face in order for no. you to get muscles? What do they mean? They mean that... that Unless you lift weights that are hard for your muscles to lift and so difficult to lift that the next day you will feel pain because you did something you've never done before. But the benefit of doing that, why would anybody go to the gym and make themselves hurt? Because there is a benefit long-term that's connected to it, which is your muscle gets stimulated, it grows, and then it's able to handle more pain in the future. And then if you keep going, it, you know, you, this is like a, a circular kind of principle that, that, that develops uh, greater uh, muscular health for your body. So now we're talking about gym for the soul. No pain, no gain. That's the principle of James 1, 2 through 4. Let steadfastness, which is produced by the trial, have its work, perfect work in your soul, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, meaning that you may grow from it. You may develop from it. Okay, the fourth reason why we suffer, and this is not consistent, meaning it's not every moment of your life, but it is specific moments if you're truly uh, belonging to the Lord and serving the Lord in the way that you should, you will experience um, feedback from the world that we would consider to be negative, and we call that negative feedback from the world persecution suffering for the sake of your connection to the Lord and for the sake of your representing the Lord and his message to the world, 
uh, suffering for the sake of the gospel, meaning that the, there's a spiritual warfare that is going on that most of the world is blind to and ignorant about. We should not be blind and ignorant about it. But anytime you represent truth and righteousness, there will be, um, there will be feedback from the world in which uh, they make it clear in various ways, inventive ways at times, that they don't like you representing truth and righteousness. So these are the four reasons. Fallen world suffering, your specific sin, consequence suffering, character development suffering, and then persecution suffering. So again, let's say you start to suffer. Some circumstance comes in your life. You can confidently now that you've heard this brief teaching, you can confidently know it's happening. This suffering, this present suffering is happening for one of those four reasons. So what's your, what's your best response in that circumstance? The best response is, Lord, I, I want to understand why so that I can gain the fullest benefit. You can suffer in ignorance and still gain some benefit from it, but you gain more benefit as you understand what the Lord is doing. I don't believe the Lord is driven by the need to keep you as his child in ignorance. So he allowed, I'll go back to the Job example, he allowed Job to suffer in ignorance for a short period of time. For that week that his friends sat there and, and, and listened to him complain about his suffering. But at the end of that week, the Lord did show up and did reveal himself in the whirlwind and then spoke directly and audibly. Not that the Lord will do this for us, but he spoke to Job directly and audibly and gave him clear and definitive explanation of what was going on and why it was happening. The point is the Lord wants us on board with what we're experiencing and why we're experiencing it so that we can gain the full benefit in heart and mind. So, what do you do? Let's go back to James 1. And we did make this point in our home church study, but this is one of those timing things where, um, because we've just studied it, I'm just going to revisit it briefly. I read verses 2 through 4 about counting it all joy when you meet Trials of various kinds. Now you, you can count it joy because you understand there are good reasons why I'm in this trial. And I, I know it's producing something in me. But then verse 5, which I didn't read, is the very next thing that James focuses the believer's attention on. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is not, verse 5 doesn't change the subject. It's not like 2 through 4, he's talking about our experience of trials and the suffering that we experience in them and how we should have a better attitude about them, counting it joy. But then now, okay, I'm done with that. Verse 5, I'm just going to start a new theme on wisdom, isolated from everything else. Verse 5 is immediately connected to verses 2 through 4. James is saying, when you're in this circumstance of suffering, the greatest thing other than than a heart's faith in the Lord that this is producing some good benefit for me that I don't see yet, that's the counting at all joy. 
the very next important thing is you need to have wisdom in that circumstance so that you can accurately, clearly understand at a heart level why what is happening to you is happening to you. There's always a why. For the person in the world who does not know the Lord and their heart is in darkness and spiritual ignorance constantly without any improvement, they're going to suffer and they'll never understand why. They'll say, they'll respond and react with, why me? Even unbelievers will say, why me? But they'll never get an answer to that. That's an ultimately frustrating circumstance. But for the believer, the Lord doesn't want you to end up in a why me. He wants you to understand, oh, I get, I get why. I see it. I understand it. I'm on board with it. I'm, I'm now cooperating with you, Lord, in what you're wanting to accomplish in taking me through this unique set of circumstances. That yes, I would never have chosen for myself, but I get now why you did choose it for me. So if any of you lacks wisdom, what are you to do? The implication is, at the beginning of the suffering, you will lack wisdom, most likely. So if you do, if you don't get it right off the bat, cry out to the Lord and ask him for wisdom, but cry out with great confidence that he doesn't want to leave you in ignorance. He will give you a generous portion of wisdom, which is an ability by the grace of God to accurately discern why what is happening to you is happening to you. And me, me giving you the menu of four options hopefully will be a head start in your accurate discernment. Uh, let's look at one last passage on this question from another great example, but now in a New Testament context. The Apostle Paul, turn with me if you would to 2 Corinthians. Now, outside of Christ, of course, who was the greatest sufferer, in all of history, he suffered more than anyone ever has, is currently, or ever will. But second only to Christ, I think Paul was probably the, the greatest sufferer in the New Covenant era, even though he was early in the New Covenant era. Uh, just the list of the things that Paul, that he listed for us in his life circumstances that he suffered is impressive in the sense of, I'm glad it, what, the Lord didn't choose me to go through that. I can honestly say that. I, I really am glad that I have not had to suffer everything that Paul suffered. But here's one particular experience of suffering in 2 Corinthians 12. And I'll start reading in verse uh, 7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, what is it when a person becomes conceited? What's happening to them? They're lifting themselves up in their perspective above others in a way they should not. They're viewing themselves as somehow superior to others. So Paul is admitting that, that he was in a situation where, naturally speaking, he would be inclined to view himself as superior. And the Lord knew he would have that inclination. And so the Lord was safeguarding Paul's heart. How do you think he safeguarded Paul's heart from becoming conceited? By causing him to suffer. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. God had revealed so much to Paul that naturally speaking, he would tend to think, 
I'm, I've, I've got this stuff wired. The Lord has chosen me to funnel all of this to the world, to even to his people. So, you know, I must be better than them. I must know more than them. I must be, be in some way superior to them. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now you understand he's speaking what we describe as metaphorically. He's using a word picture. He's not describing he was just traveling along and he literally was, was pricked by a, a literal actual thorn from a bush or a tree. He's describing a circumstance that was thorn-like. Now, how many of you have ever been pricked by, a, I mean, a really painful thorn? Okay, so whatever he's talking about is something that really pierced him. He says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. So this was not a physical thing at all. This was a person. A messenger of Satan. Just like Paul was a messenger of God, a messenger of Satan was attached to him to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So what did Paul do now? He's, he's being harassed by a messenger of Satan. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord. Do you think he's pleading with the Lord at this moment for wisdom? Most likely what he was pleading is, make it stop, please, Lord, make it stop. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So we know we're on the right track. And his prayer was more along the lines of, I just want this to end. But he said to me, the Lord chose, just like the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, to bring him clarity in the midst of his suffering circumstance. The Lord graciously chose to speak to Paul in the midst of his circumstance. And this is what the Lord said. My grace is sufficient for you. For you what? For you what? My grace is sufficient for you to experience this suffering and to continue in it rather than me ending it prematurely. Now, does that mean that the suffering would have no end? It really depends. It really depends. It, and, and it's not for us to choose the set of circumstances. Some suffering is temporary and has a definitive endpoint. Other suffering is lifelong, and, and we will always experience it. I think fondly, I remember fondly, uh, for some who are newer to our body may not remember, but some of you long-termers will remember our brother Moshe, yeah. who is now with the Lord, and his suffering is definitively over forever. But from the time that he was here in this world, for all the years that I knew him, he had a severe case of multiple sclerosis and was, um, was paralyzed from the neck down and could speak, but only with great difficulty. And it was hard to understand him. And um, I know for a fact from the many conversations I had with him and many times I prayed with him uh, that he wanted the suffering to end. He wanted the circumstance to, you know, he, he was praying like Paul did, that it should leave me. But the Lord chose for it to be his lifelong experience. So I don't want you to think that if you, if you pray in the right way, it will always end when you want it to end. In his case, it never ended until he went to be with the Lord. But not all, you know, it's, again, it's in, it's in the hands of the Lord, whether it continues or whether it ends. 
But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then the Lord finished his message to Paul there. And this is Paul's takeaway. This is what conclusion Paul drew from what the Lord had revealed to him. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Those are the things that the messenger of Satan was causing in his life. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now he understood. So why was, out of the menu of four things, why was this specific suffering happening to Paul? This thorn in the flesh. Because of number four on our list. It was persecution suffering for the sake of the gospel. And the only way for it to end is, number one, Paul to never be tempted by conceit. And number two, for him to stop preaching the gospel. And he wasn't going to stop preaching the gospel. And because he had a nature similar to ours, he was always going to be subjected to the possibility of of crossing the line into conceit because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations the Lord was giving him. So the Lord ensured his heart would stay in a healthier place by continuing the trial longer than what Paul would have preferred. All right, so I went a little bit longer on that one than I anticipated. I hope that's helpful to you in terms of understanding the biblical principle of suffering and why it's happening and what the Lord would call us to do uh, and to understand when it's happening to us. I think we'll have time to do one other question. I I had planned for three, so I'll save one for another time. I'll take the shorter of my two remaining questions. Uh, this one's a good one, and it has to do with a, a biblical symbolism that uh, was primarily used in the Old Testament, but very important ways used in the New Testament as well. The question is this. What is Zion? And what impact does it have on Christians? Does it matter at all to us? Will it have a future significance to believers? So Zion is a very frequent biblical word. It's found in the Bible some 163 times. So anytime a key word is used like that, 163 times, you can know it's a, it's a favorite reference by the Lord for his people to focus on. And it's used in every time that it's used, it's used in what we rightly call a symbolic way. It doesn't mean when we're talking about Bible symbols, and we'll be getting into this more as we, as we go into our third segment of our study in a couple of weeks on Christ in the Old Testament. We're going to be shifting from Bible prophecies of Christ, which we've already covered, and then the, the Old Testament appearances of Christ in what we call the Christophanies. We're going to be shifting in our third segment to Old Testament symbolism pointing to Christ. And symbolism is one of the main ways God communicates to his people. It's not an exclusive communication way, but it's one of the primary ways, one of the most frequent ways. And it's because symbols paint pictures, God-inspired pictures in our heart and mind that help us to grasp and comprehend difficult-to-comprehend concepts. So 163 times the Lord himself uses the terminology of Zion. What is it? The original basis for Zion as a symbol was 
to a, an actual geographic circumstance connected to the city of Jerusalem. So before, you know, you understand that in the Garden of Eden, there's no Jerusalem, right? And then during the days of Noah, there's no Jerusalem. And then in the days of Moses, there's no Jerusalem. And, and continuing on through Old Covenant history, redemptive history, there's no Jerusalem until the story of King David. And it's under King David that a city in the ancient world going all the way back to the book of Genesis known in the days of Melchizedek, in the days of Abraham as the city of Salem now takes on a new designation in the days of David of Jerusalem and it becomes the capital city of God's covenantal purposes in the earth and of course the capital city of his covenant people, Israel. But Zion had to do with a specific geographic feature connected to the city of Jerusalem. That was to a mountain. Uh, Jerusalem is built on a set of mountains. They're not gigantic in terms of just pure geography. They're not super high mountains, but they, but they are mountain. In other words, it's not just built on a level plain in the middle of a valley. It's, it's built in these mountains. And Zion is one of those, and it just happens to be the most significant one because originally it had a different name going all the way back to the days of Abraham, and the original name was Moriah. So Moriah is the, the mountain that the Lord called Abraham to demonstrate his, his absolute faith and trust in the Lord by by offering his son Isaac to the Lord as a sacrifice. And of course, he, didn't, he wasn't allowed by the Lord to follow through with that. The Lord simply tested him to see if he would and then stopped him before he actually uh, offered his son Isaac. And uh, that mountain became then famous within the covenant community of God's people and the generations to follow because that's the mountain of sacrifice. Now that mountain continues and later a city is built right there, the city of Salem and then later the city of Jerusalem. And that mountain over the course of time, and I, don't, I can't point you to any passage that specifically shows when and how it was renamed, but that, that mountain is then redesignated as Zion. And it is the same mountain that later in the time of Christ, of course, he would be crucified on that same mountain. So just from a theological standpoint, you can imagine the, the significance of it as the location, both of the Old Testament symbol of Christ's sacrifice in the circumstances of Abraham in the place of God the Father, offering his son, his dearly beloved son, his only son, covenantally to the Lord in the person of Isaac, in the same way God the Father offers his son, his dearly beloved son, his only son, the Lord Jesus, on the same mountain, but much later in history. So the symbolism of the mountain then is tied to two things. It's tied to the mountain itself, and it's tied to the city that's built on that mountain. So Christ was sacrificed just immediately outside the city walls, of the city of Jerusalem on that mountain, but it's affiliated with or associated with Jerusalem. Let's look at a couple of 
passages that make those connections, one to the mountain and one to the city. These are both found in the book of Psalms. But as I said, there's 163 Zion verses. I certainly am not going to take the time to take you through all of those, but these two are representative. Psalm 48. I'll read from verse 1. And this, if you'll notice, above the number 48 in our text, you have in uh, italics this thematic title of the psalm, which is the song to the Lord, this worship song. And the thematic title is Zion, the city of our God. So let's read from verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, which that phrasing implies that this is a mountain set apart from all other mountains on the face of the earth. The, the concept of holy in the Old Testament wasn't just you're better than something else if you're holy, but you are separated from something else if you're holy. So under the inspiration of God's spirit, the writer identifies the Lord's own holy mountain it means it belongs exclusively to him and it's a mountain unlike all other mountains even distinguished from another holy mountain in earlier old covenant history mount sinai which a very important mountain super important because it's on that mountain that the lord revealed himself to his people in the shekinah glory called moses into his presence gave him the blueprint for the building of the sanctuary of God, the tabernacle, and gave him the revelation of the law and specifically the two tablets of the law, what we call the Ten Commandments, the standard for God's covenant relationship with his people. But here, this mountain is separated even from Sinai, and there is good reason to understand it's more holy than Sinai. Because while the, the law is essential to our relationship with the Lord, provides clarity of God's standards for us, but it's unable, Sinai is unable to lift us into right relationship with the Lord because we cannot, by obeying God's law, create a right relationship with the Lord. So we need a higher mountain, a more holy mountain, a better mountain, a mountain where a, an adequate sacrifice can be made for us. And there is only one sacrifice adequate for the greatness of our problem, and that's the sacrifice that Christ accomplished for us. So great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. And then this beautiful poetic phrase, beautiful in elevation. What that essentially means is, from a theological, spiritual perspective, not a geographic perspective. This is the highest mountain on the face of the earth. Now, from a pure geographic standpoint, there are many mountains much higher. And of course, the highest of all, we now know they didn't then, is Mount Everest. You know, many thousands of feet higher than this mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem was built. But 
spiritually speaking, there is nothing that's happened on Mount Everest that can come close to what happened on Mount Moriah slash Mount Zion. So his holy mountain, higher than all others, beautiful in elevation is the sense of it, is the joy of all the earth. Not meaning that everyone will rejoice in it, but everyone who has eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand will respond with joy because of it. And then he finally he identifies it, he names it at the end of, of the verse. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So we have two associations for Zion. One is the association with the mountain itself, and two is the association with the city then that is built on that mountain because it's now based upon the sacrifice that would be offered of the Son of God upon that mountain. It then qualifies as the true capital city of the covenant people, covenant nation. All right, we'll look at one other passage on this. Um, also in the book of Psalms, but let's head back now to Psalm 2. And we're almost done here. Psalm 2. This is what we call a messianic psalm, meaning it's a, 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 prof, it's a psalm of prophetic anticipation of the work of Christ and the purpose of God in Christ. Um, the theme of the psalm starts at the beginning in verse 1 with, the nations are raging, the people are plotting, the kings of these various nations on the earth are setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, meaning his chosen one, his Messiah, against God the Father and God the Son. And then... Verse 4, the Lord is laughing at them in their feeble efforts to resist his ultimate purpose in history. And he is holding them in derision because of the arrogance of their hearts. And then, verse 5, then he, the Lord, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king. So you think you're in charge. You're not in charge. I'll tell you who's in charge. My chosen one is the one in charge. And I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Again, the, the rule and reign of the sun is associated both with the mountain concept and the city concept combined into one rightly understood combined symbol. Now, what does that have to do with us? Because they originally had asked, what impact does this have on Christians and does it matter to us and does it have future significance? We'll look at one last passage, Hebrews chapter 12, and this will be our last for tonight. One New Testament. It's not the only place in the New Testament where Zion is mentioned, but this is uh, one of the more important ones and connected directly to what we've just been developing in Psalm 2. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'll read verse 18. Paul the Apostle here is teaching and he's referencing in verse 18 
the revelation of the Lord to his people on Mount Sinai when the law was given. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing, that's what was happening on Sinai when the law was revealed, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, which is exactly how the people reacted when the Lord appeared on Sinai in the Shekinah glory. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. This is the Lord's command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned because the, 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 the full holiness of God was being revealed on the mountain. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you haven't come to that mountain as, as, as awesome as Sinai was. You, in your new covenant relationship with the Lord, have not returned to Sinai. You've come to a greater and higher and more awesome mountain than even Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. Now, this is addressed to true believers in Christ. So, in some sense, anyone that's truly born again, that belongs to Christ in a truly saving way, we have come to a mountain, a higher, more glorious mountain than Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And now he associates it with the city, but not natural earthly Jerusalem in history. But he says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the point here is that as great as God's purposes were and played out in the context of natural earthly Jerusalem, natural earthly Jerusalem was always only pointing symbolically forward to a higher and greater city than itself, to a heavenly capital city where the Messiah would rule forever, uninterruptedly. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The point of the passage is, yes, uh, to answer the question, will it, have a, will it have a future significance to believers? Only as significant as heaven itself. And how significant is heaven to true believers? It's ultimately significant. So understand the symbolism. It's, a, it's pointing to a mountain, but the highest of all mountains, and that highest mountain is actually located in heaven itself. The greatest and most glorious of capital cities, but that city is no longer on earth, even though there's still a natural Jerusalem. But it pales in comparison with the true, the heavenly, the glorious Jerusalem that is above where Christ sits now, right this moment, enthroned and ruling and reigning over all forever. All right, that brings us to the end uh, of our open study for tonight. And um, we'll pick up again, Lord willing, next Thursday night. Thank you for coming.